Welcome to the Block Fuel Podcast, where we sit down and speak with thought leaders in the ever-changing world of digital assets. So sit back and relax, because another episode of the Block Fuel Podcast begins now. Welcome to the Block Fuel Podcast. We are joined by Aviad Stein from Broadridge Financial. Broadridge, for those who don't know, a global financial technology company that provides critical infrastructure, empowers corporate governance, capital markets, and wealth and investment management. Broadridge solutions help clients improve operational efficiencies, reduce risk, drive innovation, and deliver a better customer experience. So I want to dig into all of that and, and what that actually means. One thing I found fascinating, you guys are doing $10 trillion in settlements a day across the security markets, which is about 10 times the crypto market. And so given your role, I'd love to digest a little bit in terms of what you're doing in your day-to-day role as the global head of innovation over at Broadridge. And then Talk a little bit more about what you're doing within the crypto space to get things started here. Yeah, definitely. First of all, thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here and to share everything we're doing within the space. So talking more about Broadridge and what you just mentioned, right, about the settlement, we're definitely known as, as kind of the backbone of the financial services ecosystem, right? We're serving a broad ecosystem around brokers and banks, but that doesn't stop there. We're also serving... Other industries going from insurance companies all the way to healthcare providers, utility, and we're doing that primarily on the communication side. You know, another, another fun fact is that we're distributing over 2 billion communications on an annual basis. Mostly right now it's digitally, but some of it goes still as a printouts, right? It could start from monthly statements all the way to prospectus documents and other regulatory uh, obligated communications, but then it also goes to transactional ones. So if you think about that and you think about the $10 trillion okay, in settlement, one word comes to mind, which is data, right? We are, for all intents and purposes, we're a data provider. Mm-hmm. We're an aggregator, but at the same time, what we're doing through the network effect and the network value that we have serving over 5,000 brands, we're able to take structured and unstructured data and start building very interesting services, solutions, and products for our clients. And at the same time, understand exactly where the market is going. Figure out what's next. We're talking about digital assets. We talk about crypto. Talk about AI, which everybody is talking these days, right? Tremendous opportunities for us with the power of the network that we have to start thinking about particular use cases and how technology plays a big role in that. I know you guys did a global survey recently, which I'd love for you to touch on. Um, and then if we could touch on a little bit about the white paper. So about a year ago, we, we recognized and realized the big opportunity in the crypto space. And for us, it didn't really start by thinking about the type of services or solutions that can benefit crypto holders. We thought about much more broadly. We started looking into what are some of the essential services, some of the gaps that are preventing from crypto holders to enter the space. We start looking from the perspective of what parameters need to be disclosed, available, accessible to crypto holders, but not just for them, to regulators Mm -hmm. and regulatory bodies globally, to the exchanges, and anybody who can have an interest in the space to have access to the right data and information so they can make better decisions. So the first step for us was to start with what we call the power of experimentation. Going back to my background, I formed labs in the past and accelerators. And the number one thing that you do is start generating hypotheses. You start looking into different assumptions in the space. And that's what we did. 
we wanted to understand exactly where the gaps are with crypto holders. Some who have been in the space and churned, some who are still in the space but don't have enough knowledge, and some who are really concerned entering the space in light of the FTX implosion, the mm -hmm. terror, and other you know, climatic events that happened that really just paralyzed people from entering the space. So the first step that we took was to create a global survey. We had roughly 2,000 crypto holders from various geographies in the world, primarily in the US, but we also accounted for Canada, the UK, and other parts of Europe. And the goal was to do three things. Number one, understand what they understand about the space. Terminology, how things are happening behind the scenes. Number two is what is the level of appetite to receive information? Push versus pull, right? Having information accessible for them. And the third call is to what extent that information is going to make their decision-making easier, right? Who do they expect to provide the data to them? Who should be behind this? Who is regulatoring? Who is auditing the information? So this is where we started. And we, like I said, we surveyed about 2,000 global uh, crypto holders. And some of the things we've realized through the survey were really eye-opening. The terminology, things like tokenomics were not clear for the majority of crypto holders, even the ones who are playing in the space for, for many years now. Uh, more than that, you have people who view the space more as gambling, right? Nobody really looked at the crypto space until this point as a long-term investment. Mm -hmm. And it's partially because there are no real guardrails. And there are no parameters by which the exchangers and the cryptos themselves are being forced to disclose information, right? Everything is looked from a gamification perspective, and that was highlighted in the survey. The second thing that we've done, and I'm going to go back to the survey in a second because we have a follow-up for that. But the second thing we wanted to do is through our extensive outreach to regulatory bodies in the U.S. and Canada and other geographics in the world, we wanted to start sharing the information that we've collected in the surveys. So we know through multiple sessions that we had with Senator Staff on the Hill, Senator Brown, Senator Gillibrand, and others, we start sharing that information. But also what we wanted to do is understand from them, where are they in the process of coming up with a framework by which crypto holders will feel protected, the exchanges will feel they're playing by the rules, and the cryptos themselves will be able to provide a lot of information that will, quote-unquote, legitimize the space similarly to the traditional financial ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And so what we came up with is a white paper that accounted for the things that we've heard, the things that we believe that need to be disclosed through a, a very extensive data ontology exercise that we've done internally, mapping out on and off-chain data, and really coming up with a recommendation. Obviously, not being bulletproof, but something okay that we believe that on a day-to-day -day basis has to be accessible. Where it's going to be hosted, who is going to be behind it, we kind of left those questions aside. We wanted to focus primarily on the why and the what. Why does it matter to disclose information and what type of information? And once we're going to conclude that process, we can figure out, okay, who should be behind it and how it should be disclosed, right? Is that information that is going to go directly into your wallet when material events are happening? Is that something that you would expect to receive as an email? 
or as a summary, right, on a specific cadence, like a monthly statement. All of those questions we put aside, but the white paper really outlined all the categories, seven to 10 categories, starting from an overview, governance, financial metrics, tokenomics, um, everything that we believe that is vital for decision-making from a crypto holder perspective. Yeah, I'll be on. Uh, we appreciate that. And I think that actually gets into two main things and very timely things that our listeners are very like, um, you know, can't have their eye on. It's A, when is the ETF going to get approved? B, you know, is the U.S. lagging behind in crypto regulation? I'd say, so we love that you're getting out there. You're surveying people. You're surveying people that have been in the industry for a while and try to find, have transitioned into the Web3 space. What would you say are your kind of main takeaways and recommendations on those two pieces? And would you say that simply like the whole disclosure element of not having the right information is causing the U.S. to be lagged behind or is delaying ETS? Or do you think it's more of a more of a politically driven decision making process? So the short answer would be soon for the ETF. And yes, the U.S. is lagging behind. Okay. But if, we, if we're really starting to unpack everything and talk about it, if you think about what BlackRock is doing or, or even Fidelity as a matter, right? They're trying to create separate entities with offerings to their existing investor base who have an interest, right, in entering the space. But because there's no regulatory framework, there is a concern, right? Let's say Fidelity is an example, right, to cannibalize or jeopardize the mothership but at the same time, they recognize the opportunity, right, to offer that to their clients. So you kind of have to, you have to put the things together, right? How do I protect my business? But how do I expand my business? Mm-hmm. This is where I think the regulatory framework, okay, is critical. Now, if you think about the crypto space as a whole, it's a global marketplace. Mm-hmm. It doesn't belong just within the US or Canada or the UK or India. It's anywhere and it's everywhere. It's things okay that are trading 24-7, things that are as liquid as possible, right? Things that people even don't understand, but things okay that are changing on a constant basis. So how can you even come up with a regular framework, right? That for example, Ethereum is, you know, traded on who knows how many exchanges, right, all over the world. And if you think about the governance piece of that, right, you have about 1,500 proposals on an annual basis just for Ethereum. How do you manage all of that? Who should manage all of that? So those are some of the big questions, right? That I think a framework that will start, whether it's in Canada, in my perspective, or in Europe, where we have the MICA ruling, right, which is slightly more advanced, will in a way drag the U.S. to take pieces of that and create its own framework here. But it's going to be a hybrid, right? I don't foresee every geographics creating its own regulatory framework. But then what you're doing, you're even more decentralizing the decentralized ecosystem. And I think people will feel very overwhelmed, very confused, and you will see less adoption in space. So let me give you another example. Right, of the, right from the start, we recognize that Canada, as a, from a geographic perspective, is probably one of the better places to start conversations with regulatory bodies, but also test things in markets. And if you go back about a year ago, maybe slightly less than nine months ago, they came out with the Know Your Product ruling. Now, the Know Your Product 
right, is really just a set of guidelines that regulatory bodies in Canada provided to the exchanges and said, here's a framework by which, okay, we expect from you to provide some level of information about specific cryptos. The problem is it's not detailed, right? Like Micah and Europe, okay, it's just a framework. What we want to do is provide the, the granular details that will supplement those overarching uh, um, rulings and guidelines and then test those in market. And I think once we're going to do that, and like I said before, we, we have a few pilots that we're going to kick off pretty soon. One of them going to be in Canada with a few exchanges and some of the crypto holders over there. We're going to test that for about three to six months. We're going to provide a lot of information and data. We're going to learn from that. The goal would be to educate at the end of that pilot, regulatory bodies across the world and specifically in the U.S. Because the timeline for the regulatory framework in the U.S. is probably within the next six to 12 months to get to a point, okay, where all the regulatory bodies, whether it's the SEC, the CFTC, will feel comfortable of what framework to put together. They need the data. And we're in a position right now to test in the market what data should be provided and for them to come up with that. Right. And I think actually with the U.S., you know, I hate to say this, but obviously we're going into an election season. And with that, a lot of stuff is going to continue to go very slow because they're just going to, other things obviously are going to take priority. And that kind of leads into the next item, which is more on the evolution of the digital asset market. And I have my own thoughts on this whole topic and where it's, you know, where we are right now. When you look back over the, a year, two years, the crypto market has gotten beaten up pretty bad. And so that being said, like the last thing on tokenizing funds and then working with wealth managed over here at Fusion IQ is you, you even mention crypto to most of them and they, some of them, if they're very forward thinking, are very yeah, okay with it. Other ones, because of the stigmatism that is attached to crypto still and all the various, I'll call them games that have gone on in the space, most people are like, oh, I'm not touching that. But more and more, you're starting to see people say, okay, for example, a, a wealth manager says, I have a customer, they have all their money with me, but their son who they gave X amount of dollars to went and bought whatever crypto or no, yeah. Yeah, one of the crazy ones, let's just say. And, you know, now he's up, let's just say 15X. So to me, like, and what's really driven me back into the wealth side is that when you look at that, you go, okay, how you need to include that in that financial picture. And most advisors are not able to right now because there's not, there's not tools, there's not technology for that. But the one thing I'll say is like, I think everybody has a different opinion of where the market is going to go, because I would love to hear you say, or where you think we're going to evolve in the next, let's just say five to 10 years. You know, that's like a hundred years, actually. Crypto years are, are intense. But do you think that blockchain and tokenization, how it is currently presented is going to be how it is, I would say in those five, next five to 10 years, or do you think we're going to see an evolution in that? I think. If you don't think it's going to evolve, then you probably don't understand the space and you don't understand how technology works, right? Because the reality is that 
whatever, again, assumptions or hypothesis we have about the space right now, they're yep. probably okay, going to be very different, right? A month from now, not even five or 10 years. Yep. One thing I wanted to mention, and I was actually at consensus this year, and I was speaking over there in a, in a it was kind of like a private uh, panel around regulatory, the regulatory framework. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you guys have been to consensus, but for last year, you could have seen how mature and a more intimate event that was. Last year, okay, everybody was about NFTs, right? The gamification and the NFTs, everything needs to be in an NFT, right? Arts and, and other alternatives. This year, it was primarily about the infrastructure and payments. And that by itself, okay, good show, okay, that the right people were in the room, the right people were at the event, the right people who understand how to separate the cryptos and investment and blockchain as a technology were there. And I think going back right to education, there is a big gap on everybody who is involved or want to participate in the space or how different the technology is from the investment portion of it in crypto, right? And I think so it started there. Now, I'll, I'll give you another example, right? As someone who has been in, in, in many industries, in many various roles, right, around innovation, the number one thing, okay, that an end consumer or a user or an investor care about is simplicity. They don't really care how the sauce, right, is being made. They just care, okay, to have the sauce in front of them. If they like it, great. If they're not, then they're going to try something different. That's exactly that. You know, there was this term back in the day about mobile first, and I wholeheartedly objected it. I'm like, no, experience first, because the end user doesn't really care if it's on mobile or not. Yes, if they're on the go and everything is accessible to them, of course, they will prefer that. But if the experience is really bad, they're not going to even touch it. Right. right? I mean, what people want is to have a level of protection. They want to have accessibility. They want to understand exactly who is behind it, right? And how are they going to feel that they're making the right decision? It's all start with the underlying data. It's all start by knowing exactly who is behind each one of those cryptos, whether it's the foundation, what is the stake in truly okay in that crypto? How many proposals? How do I participate? How do I influence, right? All of those things are not defined yet. I mean, if you think about where governance, right, as an example happening right now in the crypto space, it's mind blowing, right? That you have Discord, you have Twitter and you have TikTok, right? As, as the platform by which people who participate in a space are influencing the direction of mm-hmm. each one of those projects and cryptos. You can't really continue and evolve, right? Five years down the road and have massive adoption. You're yeah. going to need to have certain guardrails, which again, to some extent, you will need the regulatory bodies to recognize. And the last one I will make which is going to be very different than TreadFi in my, in my mind, is that when it comes to the crypto space as a whole, and it goes back to education, the regulatory bodies, because they have to learn, they're going to allow all the participating bodies in the space, exchanging in cryptos, to shape up what regulation is going to look like. Unlike the traditional model. And I can tell you, okay, without naming names, a lot of the conversation I'm having with the exchanges about those pilots were kicking off in the market, you know, it, very shortly, I always, I started the conversation, I said, look, you can be the entity that is being influenced by regulation at some point in time, or you can shape up what regulation is going to look like. 
Mm-hmm. What are you choosing? I yeah. would rather be in a driver's seat and have a voice that yeah. says, here is the ecosystem of data. That's what we have. That's what we want to share because it's going to allow us okay, to operate right in a very transparent manner versus some regulatory bodies. Mm-hmm. Right, going to come in and say, no, you have to disclose that information on that cadence to those participants. Otherwise, there's going to be some consequences. Well, I think that's why it's so important to have these types of conversations. I know when we spoke with Carol House, who was working CBDCs within the Biden administration, I was blown away with all the misconceptions you hear on Twitter versus what's actually happening versus Congress on TV, who sound like they don't know exactly what's going on. Thankfully, it's good to know that there are some very intelligent people working in D.C. that are thinking through security behind this, the national implications of hackers coming in. What happens if there's, God forbid, an EMP and does that take down the power grid and and none of these work? It's very important, I think, to kind of create this bridge between retail traders that are doing the Dogecoin and going up 10,000% then to check the wallet in the morning. You have to remind me something, which I would like to say the last, I participated in FinTech Week in D.C., yeah. And the guest speaker was former Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. And yeah. he was talking about, and that was even before the FTX implosion, by the way. Right? Yeah. He was talking about the sense of urgency that the U.S. government needs to have around crypto yeah. as national security threat for this country. And the reason why he talked about national security was because you see a lot of the money flooding away from this country. To heirs, okay, where the U.S., whether they want or not, have no stake and no visibility. Now, it could be, okay, parts of North Korea. It could be Russia. It could be Iran. It could be anywhere, okay, that we don't foresee those countries to be allies. And you start seeing, okay, that the money is flooding away. The infrastructure that goes behind, okay, is, is being controlled, right, by truly foreign entities, okay, that you don't know what the implication of this economy is going to be. So... That's the mindset. And I think at that point in time, some of the regulatory bodies, whether they fight among themselves to view it as a security or commodity, let's put it aside, they recognize that they need to pay attention to the space. They need to pay attention okay, to what people really want, right? Because end of day, it's about control. It's about transparency. It's about accessibility. It's about simplicity. That's what people want. Most people don't understand the projects. Most people will never even be interested in the project themselves. Mm-hmm. What they will care for, do I have all the information to make the right decisions? Mm-hmm. Who is providing me that? Who yeah. gave the stamp of approval, right, that that data was verified, was validated, mm-hmm. and that I'm insured, like my assets, right, that I'm trading right now with broker? Yeah, I think one thing that, you know, makes this more tangible for, like, more the retail side of our listeners is when you talk about disclosures and you talk about certain metrics that you're looking at that are verified and it's good data, what would you say is the polished turd or the dumpster fire of like data metrics that you're seeing that Broadridge is coming in and cleaning up? Things like looking at NFT platforms and their total trade volume. Well, now it's starting to come out that a lot of that is wash trading. And you look at certain tokenomics of certain protocols and you see that there's the fully diluted value is massively different than like what's shown on coin market cap. And so these are a lot of things that the retail traders have been burned by and they're trying to figure it out. And professionals like yourself coming in and cleaning that up and educating is super helpful, you know, for retail traders. What, what are some of the things that you've seen or the worst that you've seen and where Broadridge is really focused on providing good data? So 
I, I think that's the, the million or the trillion dollar question because the reality that it's all about the verification and the validation of the data, right? And without that, it's just data, right? That you can't really trust, that you can't make decisions on. So we are doing a lot of things that unfortunately I can't really, dis in, the, in the spirit of disclosure, I can't really disclose that, what we're doing behind the scenes. But we're, we're taking some, some really interesting strategic steps right now where we're taking the underlying data, whether it's provided to us or whether it's available on-chain or off-chain that we have access to, and we're, to your point, cleaning it up, we try to standardize, right? So you, ha you have different types of, of assets. Each one of those is going to have a data set that will be standardized, that's going to have to be looked at, going to have to be verified and validated. And then you're going to have an audit, right, on that, on the specifications. It could be on a monthly, quarterly, annual basis, whatever. But we're putting right now the entire framework, not just for what information needs to be disclosed, but who are those entities that need to be involved. To us, pretty much everything that we're doing, and we're kind of going back to the whole like, network effect, it's about the consortium. We're going to need to have full participation from everybody involved in the space to get from a point that the crypto holders themselves, the exchanges, the cryptos, the regulatory bodies, data providers, technology companies, right? Analytic providers, all of them feel that they can enter the space safely and then they can start thinking about what type of services and solutions they can build on top of that. That's what we're doing. We're putting together all those pieces. Now, again, we are well positioned to do that because we're doing it in a massive and a tremendous right volume already for the thread file. And so we're leveraging all the connections, all the credibility that we've gained over the years to do it here as well. Yeah, I think there's some some things that I think at least want, like so Broadridge, obviously back office, it's one of your bread and butter pieces. That being said though, like a lot of these, the legacy systems that the banks, that broker dealers, exchanges are operating, those weren't made for 24 by seven trading. That was more, okay, you trade Monday through Friday, weekends you're closed. And then if you remember, this is probably like the late 2000s, you had the big FX, retail FX boom, where all these quote exchanges, but they're really just arcades came up and you saw a lot of fraud there too. I think the one thing I'm very cognizant of is it's not just in this, in in this asset class. And I think it goes back to a deeper problem in the country, which is education. And there is a serious lack of education on finance. When I was in school, high school, I took what, one class on consumer ed? That was 97. And so now kids, you'd say like a checkbook or something like that. Like they're like, the heck's a checkbook? Like they don't know what that is. So the reason I say all this is because while there's all this regulatory and, and things that need to happen there, there's general education for, I think, not just consumers, but regulators for, cause people aren't in it like us day in, day out, seeing what's going on, seeing who's legit, who's not legit. A firm like Broadridge, obviously you guys, you run a large portion of the market both on the front and back end, but it's interesting to hear your perspectives here. And, and I think the one thing I'm not going to 
throw in because we can go down a massive rabbit hole that is like the AI as that comes into this, things are going to get real interesting, I think. But I would say two points. First of all, I 100% agree with you. And I talked about before about the education portion, right? Education of the most basic and simplistic terminology into the space is, and this is kind of like crypto 101, right? And everybody needs to have that before you even enter the space, before what's your rights are before, okay, if it's safe or not, before it picks, how is that even compared, right, to the traditional ecosystem as a whole? Right. So I'll, I'll kind of give you a spoiler alert, right? Part of what we're putting together as part of our pilot is kind of a global glossary. And that global oh. glossary is not just about the term or the description, right, of what tokens in circulation mean, but it takes it even deeper into why should you matter to see that? And yep. then you take it even deeper. How is that relates or similar to something within a traditional model, right? If you have those three layers, that's real education because the description by itself may say or may not anything to me. But if I know how to relate that, right, to something that I'm already doing in a traditional financial ecosystem, and even more so, why should I matter about that? Then you give the full picture. So those are things that we're doing. The second thing that I would say is if you think about um, disclosures as a whole, right? People are looking at disclosures as a very stale thing. Ah, okay. I'm getting right now this piece of information, this document, okay, that outline all of my rights, right? Disclaimers, da, 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 da. Here is very different. This is not necessarily a document. This is about data. That's about accessing the right data at the right time where you need, okay, to have the right information. And then the last thing I would say is about AI, because I actually want to talk about that. AI is talked about so much for so many use cases. I would say that 90% of the use cases that AI is being talked on today is irrelevant and it's not sustainable. But there are okay. different aspects of AI that 100% going to be relevant for this particular ecosystem. Now you think about the terminology, you talk about the description, you talk about the terms, you talk about everything. If an AI tool can support and supplement in giving more of information, it could be use cases, could be examples, right? It could be historical data, whatever it is, definitely leverage AI. But again, the AI tool okay, has to be credible enough to support that, right? So that's, we're start, again, the rabbit hole okay, goes about the technology around oh, yeah. and who's behind it. But generally speaking, AI is a tool that we're going to provide a lot of the relevant content, no. a fraction of, a, of, a, of the time that you will have to go and search or ask your financial advisor or you by yourself will go and access it. So you're going to see, I think you're going to see a lot of the technologies merging together and it's going to benefit the end consumer, not necessarily just from an investment perspective. You know, we can talk a lot about how do you take that into different industries? Yeah. Talk about health records, talk about other things, okay, that the data and the content that is being produced by the data yeah. has to be as accessible, simplified, credible as it gets. I mean, that's the most powerful thing, honestly, like Broadridge being at the center. I mean, the amount of data coming in that you guys have and the power of that data, I mean... We're irregardless of, of asset class. I mean, because you have so many asset classes that you're covering, but you know, I think if people look back historically to let's go like look at mutual funds, 
mutual funds came around. I mean, they've been around since like the 1920s, but they really didn't gain traction until the 90s. And they went nuts. It was a huge market. Everybody was buying them. And then they realized, oh, well, there was a lot of fraud and things that happened that, you know, weren't good. And so I think any industry, you know, in, in digital assets, crypto, whatever, you, however you want to label it, you go through iterations. I mean, you're seeing that right now, you know, with, with, um, corporate bonds. I mean, corporate bonds used to be manu- traded manual. Corporate bonds now, like it's all electronic. Digital assets are, if you will, the new kid on the block. And it all came about since 08. So if people go back and look at why, why did this even all start was out of a crisis. So it starts out of a crisis and now you have, you know, a lot of fraud happening because the first iteration was more, maybe we're on like the second iteration now, but the first iteration was more wild, wild west. Second iteration was a little less wild west. And then now you have regulators coming in saying, whoa, pump the brakes. Like what's going on here? We need to really hunker down and stop what's going on. But that stifles innovation. You're going to have this type of stuff happen in every asset class. There's bad actors in everything. So I think that's also a good question for you is like, how are you guys handling and addressing like the regulatory side? Because I'll say it like this, like I watched this morning, I was watching that senator talk to Gary Gensler. Kind of feel bad for Gary, I gotta admit, because he kind of got stiff-armed by the senator. But at the same time, it's like, are you going to approve the ETF? Well, uh, yes or no, like type thing. I mean, that's what I think that everybody wants is more clarity, not this wishy-washy. They want to know okay, why won't you approve it? You said, because there's not enough monitoring. Okay. So they went out and got that. Now what? And I think to the point of like about the economy, the amount of growth you get from continuing this innovation outweighs the bad things that have happened in the past, in my opinion. But I would say this, first of all, I'm, I'm a true believer, not just because it's what I live and breathe that you can't stop innovation. Innovation always finds its way to keep an impact on people's life, right? One way or the other, right? You yeah. block the window, you're going to come from the door. You block the door, you're going to come from the window and, and, and so forth. So innovation right. will never be stopped. Now you have different people with different perspectives and opinions of how to drive innovation, how yeah. to implement innovation and doing it right in a structured way. And that's up for debate. I can tell you, you know, from a lot of compensation with, with SEC, whether it's former or current SEC, exact that even within the SEC, there are multiple opinions and each one of them is very, very different, right? About what needs to be done. But I think one thing is very clear. It will happen. It's more about damage control, right? Between now to the moment that regulatory bodies, bodies will recognize the need to protect everybody's involved in the space. The second thing I want to talk about is, is we haven't really touched about, which is kind of the traditional right ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Right now, we're defining what the digital asset as a whole ecosystem is going to look like. We can set the bar pretty high. You will be a fool not to expect the same level 
of transparency, of simplicity, of accessibility, flooding back to the traditional model. And so the right, you know, companies, it could be technology companies, it could be even financial services companies are thinking about the digital asset space as a stepping stone, right? That then will spill over to the traditional model. Okay. And then you're going to have a full emerged ecosystem, right? That you're going to have to support. This is what, okay, we're doing as well. We're not thinking about a digital asset right in a vacuum. This is not just solving for that particular use case. This is maybe where we start, but you're going to have to start thinking about, okay, from a perspective of traditional. And the last point I will make is around, um, you know, KYC and AML, right? If you think about the amount that financial services companies are spending, right, for KYC and AML is in the billions and billions of dollars each year. The entire blockchain, you know, framework is going to solve for that and it's going to save them tremendous amount of money that they're allocating right now. If everything is accessible, if everything is traceable and you're able to pinpoint exactly, and on top of that, you're able to start detect anomalies, right, of how transactions are being made, who is behind it, you're going to see a massive cost savings, right? That's going to help the entire financial services ecosystem, going to help the economy. And guess what? Get also going to help the regulatory bodies themselves, right? From an enforcement perspective, you're going to see a massive, massive change. This is, I think, going back to Paul's Ryan point about national security. This is where you put all the dots together, but you have to start someplace. And for us, it's about the disclosure. Start with the data, start with providing it, measure to what extent, okay, the data is effective, is efficient, is simple enough to understand so that people feel comfortable, they're entering the space. This is literally just a, it's a domino effect, right, of creating a whole new emerging ecosystem that to your point came from a bit of a crisis, right? Because we've been stagnant for the past five to 10 years from an economical perspective. You had ups and downs and you had COVID at heat, right, and slowed us down. Right. There is an opportunity to really reinvent and reimagine the entire space, but going back to fundamentals, which belongs with the first web, right, ecosystem, right? Not web two, right? But web one, which is control transparency around data, who can have access to it, for what purposes, who can share it, et cetera, et cetera. So that's yeah. kind of in a nutshell. I wish yeah, we had another hour. I'm looking at the clock here. I want to be uh, conscious of the time, but. Tokenization, CBDCs, I would have loved it into, uh, on this conversation. So maybe we can have you back. But thank you so much for coming on the Block Fuel podcast. Aviad with Broadridge Financial. Thank you for having me.